Hello and welcome to the Four Color Nerds Comics Podcast. I'm Ryan and I'm joined by another nerd, Rory. Hey, hey. It's an all-testosterone, manly beards edition of Four Color Nerds. Bro session. Oh god, let's hope not. (laughs) (laughs) Together we take on the week's comics. Each week we read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. If you don't want to hear spoilers, take a break now and go read your week's books, then come on back. Each week one of us picks their favorite book of the week, and that's our pick of the week. This week, I am that nerd. This week, our pick of the week goes to Hip Hop Family Tree number nine. Our companion song for Hip Hop Family Tree number nine is No Sleep Till Brooklyn by the Beastie Boys, because Brooklyn is basically the birthplace of hip hop, and I think that that song is kind of a, a tribute to, to that place. No Sleep Till! <laughs> Hip-Hop Family Tree number 9 is from Fantagraphic Books. It is the brainchild and blood, sweat, and tears of Edward... I think it's Pisker, I think is how you say his name. He's the writer, the artist. Colors are done by Rod Spike. So Hip-Hop Family Tree is up for two different Eisners. It's up for best, they call it historical or reality-based work. And it's also up for writer, artist, creator. You know, one person doing all, basically the cartoonist. Which I think is something that we tend to overlook in comics, how rare it is to be able to write and draw together. And that really is the essence of comics. It's, you know, words and images together. If you just have one, it's not a comic, really. So I think that celebrating the creator who can do both is really important. And goddamn, can he do both. Hip-Hop Family Tree, when I first stumbled on this, I started issue one and kind of worked my way through. Hip-Hop Family Tree, basically, it started pretty much before the power outage in Brooklyn that let everyone basically have their riots and get all their their new stereo equipment and like mixing boards and all that kind of stuff. Put the tools in the hands of people who probably couldn't afford them and kind of gave the, the street like a voice that it didn't necessarily have before. So at this time, you've got all these different art forms all swirling around each other. You've got hip-hop, you've got the starting of breakdancing, you've got people tagging stuff and doing like spray paint art on like trains and buildings. So all this is swirling around and at this point in the story we're getting introduced to some some new artists. This one, you've got Jam Master J, you've got the Beastie Boys, you've got the Fat Boys. There's some others in there too. What I really like about it is real life is so much more interesting than a bunch of fake bullshit that we read about a lot of the time. And this feels Yes. like really really interesting and authentic even if you don't like hip-hop i believe you will like hip-hop family tree it's compelling it tells a story that could really wander all over the place and get lost but it stays right on focus it tells a really tight interesting story and it really just it feels like it's set in that time and place so well i really like books where the setting and the time matter like in for example southern bastards like that book is set in the south and you know it's set in the south and in this book i mean it's set in brooklyn and it feels like brooklyn the even the art style looks so much like a comic book from the 80s i just love the way they do the art in this 
There's all kinds of like cross-hatching like you get in the 80s. They even do some of the pixelated that comic books used to print in the 80s. I mean, that's kind of where we get our name from for color. It really, even though I'm sure it's digital, it looks like that process. And I just think that this book is just a, a freaking masterpiece of, of artwork. People tend to think that comics are superheroes. And superheroes are just one type of story that comics can tell. I mean, comics really are the medium that you can tell stories through. And you can tell all kinds of stories. What, what did you think of? of hip-hop family tree Rory. i loved it especially you know for our listeners you may may or may not know me and ryan are both born in the 70s so we kind of grew up during the 80s during when all this stuff was happening you know when i was a young kid i was a big fan of of course the beastie boys who wasn't a lot of the a lot of the rappers like that they show in this are are rappers that i was a fan of as a kid and it's kind of like an all-star cast you've got the Beastie Boys, the Fat Boys, Kumo D, you've got Run DMC shows up at one point or another, Fab Five Freddy, who some of you guys might remember. Let's see here. Who else was in there? There's, it's just like an all-star cast. Jam Master J's in there. Yeah, just everybody, you know? Everybody. Grandmaster Flash, African Bambata. Oh! <laughs> it's just, it goes real deep, but you don't get lost in the story. Yes. And there's so much going on. At first, it was like, holy crap, what story are they going with at first? But as I was reading through the whole gig, it was just really just made it more awesome with each and every single page because they just all these other rappers keep on popping up. Dougie Fresh pops up. It was just like it was really an all star cast and it was awesome to see it. Brian mentioned they did it in the traditional four color, four color format, which was just awesome to see. You know, it really brought me back to being a kid. Everything about it was just stellar. The graffiti that they drew in there looked like actual graffiti. It was pretty cool, like, because I knew some of this stuff, but it's like there was still, like, a lot of, you know, I've watched, like, a lot of hip-hop documentaries and stuff like that, especially, like, during the 80s, 80s and 90s, the whole history and whatnot. And this really tells, like, the late 70s, early 80s rise of hip-hop and who was where and doing what. There's just so much going on. Loved it. Every second Yeah, I like how the the story is so jam-packed with artists and creators. It really just it kind of speaks to that explosion of all this pent-up creativity that this place had that they didn't have a way to to make the world listen to them and now they've got a voice and a microphone and it's just it's really interesting to me i love like i said the art is just it's really great i love when they introduce kind of i'm not going to call them villains but the guys are supposed to be like the like tough guys with iced tea and and then yeah. the, the art style is way different. It looks like almost like a 90s, early 90s image book or something. The art style is it's very yeah. noticeable, the difference. The book is just, it's fun. It's really informative. If you want to start on it, you can just pick up any issue you want and read it, and you won't be lost. If you go back to issue one and start reading it from there, you'll see how interconnected everything is, and people that show up in one issue will reappear two or three issues later. It kind of shows me the hard work it takes to be like an overnight success the years of blood, sweat, and tears that you have to put in before your moment comes for you to shine. Because like a lot of these characters we're seeing in this issue are stepping onto the stage, but you've seen them in previous issues, like hanging around clubs and talking to people and, you know, borrowing records from people. And like, you see their growth and it's just, it's really cool. There's, there's like New Jack City is in there that they talk about. <laughs> They've got a little shot of like Michael Jackson in Thriller. Oh, Yes. Yeah, it's just every page and every panel has a reason great. for oh. existing. That's the thing. There's no there's no filler here. 
and everything is serves its purpose and, and guides you along on a really fantastic journey. It's really easy to see why this is up for uh, Eisner. Just the talent, the writing is on point, the art's on point. It just does everything really, really well. Totally agree. One thing I wanted to also point out, once again, like the awesome thing about this is there's just so much information that they jam-pack into this one little book. I discovered a lot of things about, like, I was a big Kumo D fan, you know, I loved Kumo D. I didn't realize that when he was with the Treacherous Three that one of the problems that happened is that his, his the rest of the group like started basically partying and during that time he Oh I, I love that scene with like the coke on the hooker's ass to think. <laughs> <laughs> But it was really cool to see okay, so Kumo D is actually smart, takes his money that he's earning as a star and uses it to put himself through college while his bandmates are just sitting there partying their asses off and basically blowing their money. So it's cool to see, you know, this is the reason why Cool Modi was who he was. He's like, for those who don't know, he was a really big success in the 80s and like kind of into the 90s, but he kind of like was in the back, back scene a little bit more during that time. So it was really cool to see, okay, this is why he rose to power, you know, because he was actually smart and did the right thing. There's just a lot of jam-packed information. It's just a lot of history. Yeah, like that scene where, like you said, like they're getting an advance. I think they're getting paid for one of their like herd, uh, deals and one of the people's going to pick the, the money for everybody. And Cool Modi wants to wants his money so that he can go and basically pay for his books for his class. And his friend is like taking it as like smoking like crack, yeah. like in a crack house, basically. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's not all happy, you know. This is telling a very authentic story. I also really like when they show the fat boys, like the sense of like size you get from them. <laughs> not just that they're fat, but just how big they are in comparison to yeah. everyone else. Is, and just like little crazy details, I had no idea that the reason the Fat Boys got picked up by a record label is because they won a yodeling contest in like Zurich. Oh. <laughs> that they were like, if you can, you know, win these people over, we know you can make it anywhere. So they like flew them out to Zurich and there was a yodeling contest up in the mountains and the Fat Boys just killed it there and everyone loved it. Those leader hugs. So it's just, it's all kinds of crazy little stuff that you, you couldn't make up. Yeah. I just think it's a really cool interesting story that uh, ever since i read the the first one i've been i've been jonesing to, to have a chance to review it and finally fell on my week and had to do it and it's great i ended up giving it four and a half beatboxing fat boys i love this when ryan told me that this is was going to be his pick for the week i was really excited about it and as i knew it was going to be good it totally exceeded my expectations which is awesome i'm gonna give it four and a half africa bambadas baby oh yeah last time you'd reviewed uh, moon knight yes. number one now we got moon knight number two yes indeed we do which let me tell you it was just as awesome as the first one so moon knight number two as you remember we left off with moon knight he had basically in an insane asylum and we're not really sure whether he's crazy or not but he is in an insane asylum, and he is in contact with this uh, strange extraterrestrial force that we're not really sure is what voices in his head or an actual extraterrestrial force. So we lead off from there. He's talking to his therapist again. You know, she's been telling him that everything that he's he thinks he is is totally false, that he's been here since he was a kid. And now he's like, he's doubled down after he's actually seen reality or what he thinks is reality through the eyes of his mask uh so he's real adamant about no i'm the moon knight i'm not mark specter i'm the fist of khonshu 
Once again, awesome artwork with this. Every single page, I really like the style they do with it. Well, who were the, the the creative team behind this one? It's written by Jeff Lemire, art by Greg Smallwood, colors by Jordi Belair. One thing you were saying about the art on this is I, I really like that there's not just one style of art, that you get all different kinds of styles of art. Like you have this really cool notebook paper that he's been yeah. like keeping his notes on. So it's all done almost like basically doodlings you would do like in class. Yeah. Um, to me anyway. So it's just, it's notebook paper and like blue ink pen, right? And the artist is able to create really interesting, compelling images and you get really cool notes for it. Then you get this super crisp, clean, really colorful images for like the, I'm going to call it the real world, but I think it's actually the fake world, but the world that Mark Spector's trapped in. Then you get really nice, like black and it's black and white with some like blue in it for the spirit world where he's talking to like all the different gods and stuff. It's just, it's really cool to see them go back and forth with the art. I think the artist is great and Jordi Blair on colors is really makes the book pop. I definitely agree with that one. I don't know if you noticed too, but it also seems like when I've only caught this with at times, but it seems like when Moon Knight's kind of having his moments of crazy, he also has, it's like there's basically like four different art styles that, that he uses. It's always neat to see that where it's like, you're not sure whether it's a hallucination or what, but he's still actually in the, he's in the real world, but he's kind of seen it differently. You get this weird sort of rough, like dreamy kind of look to it. Yeah, the artwork just, it really makes it, it makes it so well. Can't go on enough about that. I love there's a panel where they're basically giving him like electroshock. So you have like the two art styles right next to each other where it's like the black and white of him with like, yes. with like his eyes closed when he's in the spirit world, getting ready to come back into the real world. And then they shock him, and you can see all the like blood vessels in his eyes have popped, and he's he's in a lot of pain. And then each panel, as he starts passing out down the page, just like cascades like smaller yes. and smaller and smaller until he passes out. And it's really nice little touches like that. There's constant contrast going on throughout the entire the entire story, which is great, and it really like makes having the two artwork styles side by side really makes makes each style pop even more. It's just oh, it's, once again a feast for the eyes. Plus some pretty badass mummies at the end. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I was getting there. <laughs> so uh, at one point or another, Mood Knight meets up with Khonshu in this dream realm. He, he kind of explains more about how the different gods actually interact. They live in this realm outside of space and time. And so he's that's how he essentially communicates with them and gives them some more more advice and telling them what he needs to do in order to fight these other gods that are also interacting with the world using their own agents. So then he gathers up all of his people that he has recognized as he's been in this place and then they go and escape and yes they escape into a dungeon and or in well not dungeon huh, there's the D nerd me coming out <laughs> they escape down into the basement and underneath the basement there's a subway we leave off with them running into a bunch of mummies which is awesome also you know what what was really awesome was i'm not sure if you got if you enjoyed this as much as i did ryan but when he suits up in the moon moon knight's actual costume the suit if i were in a movie theater i'd, I'd straight be cheering right there it was so awesome I saw it i was like oh that's you know that's a cool moon knight you actually see three different moon knight costumes yes. so you see when he's talking to Conchu, he's in his i call it like his superhero garb this like the cloak and like the the mask you know like more like classic moon knight and then Jeff Lemire's last run, he had him in that suit where he looks just really, really awesome. <laughs> and then it's funny that, like, the bedsheet one where it's just him, like, super crazy was also really awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like, character design. Oh, I, who would have thought that a bedsheet costume could look as awesome as it did? <laughs> 
Yeah, for sure. The other thing I, I really can't say enough about the way that uh, Greg Smallwood composes these panels is it's, it, none of it is ever boring to look at. Even the gutters in between the panels and how crisp and clean they are in the colorful real world, like the insane asylum. But then when he goes into spirit world, panels get much more like the borders aren't as distinct. They kind of bleed into each other with shadows. It's a really nice visual touch. And even like the, they're not exactly perfect squares in there. Like nothing is, is set in this dreamlike world. And I think that that just really, it really does it. Like there's, there's not the same number of panels on each page. The size of the panels helps to tell either like the passage of time or consciousness. You get, they have lots of circular images in the comics where they're like zooming in on things they want you to see in a panel. It's just, it's really nice, nice work, nice craft. It's so obvious. And, you know, you don't really think about it very often in most comics, but they put so much thought into their layout and it really does much like a movie. It helps frame the shot so much. And so I'm glad you mentioned that because yeah, it's, it's one thing that as you're reading it, it it stands out and it's something that you don't often see with a lot of comics, but yeah, they just did a fine job. So this one I'm going to go with, Oh, it it just got better for me. So I'm going to go with four and a half cockroaches on this bad boy. I will give it four mummies. I thought those mummies looked pretty rad at the end. Oh, they were so sick. They were so sick. It was just, I hate cliffhangers, but the way they did that cliffhanger, it, it just got me so excited. You you really won't be able to stop reading this once you start. So you were talking about the D&D nerd coming out in you. So this kind of brings us over into, this, is one, this was one of Christina's books. She can't be here this week, but I still love the Queens. So we have Rat Queens number 16 by Image Comics, written by Curtis J. Weeb, art by Tess Fowler, colors by Tamara Bonvillain. So Rat Queens is basically every D&D adventuring party you've ever played if you were a kid who played D&D or played now <laughs> after a few beers, basically. Oh, so true. So you've got the, the queens, if you've been following the, the story, have finally returned to, to their home. But the, the town is really weird. And you have Betty, who is my favorite queen, goes to one of her, her little friends to pick up some drugs that she... Well, she goes there to buy some drugs, but the guy is like... Just gives her the bags of bag of drugs, like of magic mushrooms, and was like, "You left these here," and she's like, "Right," and gives him like the wink and like walks away. So she's basically tripping balls throughout this whole thing and sees these alien-looking creatures kind of at the edge of her vision, which I think are doppelgangers. But you know, we'll we'll find out what's going on. There's lots of basically people being reunited with people they want to see, people they don't want to see. So you've got like the family reunion that's going on. And then you also have the dwarf lady meets up with one of the Daves again. And they go off to have some some reuniting in private. It's one of my favorite scenes where she, because he's like funnier than she remembers him being. And she's like, when did you become the funny one? Which is kind of like at first your, your first clue that something might not be up. And then like the loincloth comes up and you get like her reaction shot. And then, like, a couple pages later, you know, you see him, like, stumbling out with, like, his, like, stomach, like, ripped open. So, apparently whatever she saw did not quite meet her expectations and revealed him not to be the real Dave, I'm thinking. You also had a really awesome fight in the sewers with another adventuring party that they've been both rivals with and friends with, depending, which was really fun. Just the whole thing is really, really fun. I didn't like the last arc we had so much with the Mage University. I thought it got really bogged down in some kind of convoluted plots. And this one is pretty much just straightforward fun. You've got Betty running around with axes and chopping things apart and super high on magic mushrooms and people partying and having good, you know, adventures. I mean, there is plot that's advancing as well about this 
the town not being the same and maybe this doppelganger invasion. So it's interesting. It's got all the nudity, the violence, the profanity. Everything that I love about Rat Queens is is on display here. I tend to be hopping into some of these uh, partway through, and this is my first adventure with the Rat Queens. And right off the bat, I fell in love with it. It's crazy. The D&D party du jour here coming in <laughs> i'm sorry but the talk about the squirts in the face oh i was laughing my ass off when i read that that had to be the best i also thought the uh, reference to the, oh we're big bad adventurers and now we're reduced down to clearing out the sewers that was another great D reference because those of you who roll dice know that's usually like the work of low level adventures is doing something menial like killing a bunch of centipedes in the sewer yeah or if you play like any like mmos your first couple quests it's like really i'm a a sanitation worker basically Yeah, kill some frogs bring back the leg yeah that kind of thing it was definitely great a hell of a fun ride i really enjoyed the style of the artwork yeah it was just a fun ride it's really easy to jump in and kind of curious exactly what happened with the lusty lover (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> the four Daves is the name, I think the name of that adventuring party. So they're all named Dave. Ah. That's Orc Dave, the one that, that she likes. So he's like an Orc Druid, basically. He has his beard that has like all these like magical animals that live in it. The book is just funny. It's, it's really good. I ended up giving it three and a half magic mushrooms. I was kind of torn between giving it squirts in the face, but I really have to go with the <laughs> scene that caught me right off the bat, which was uh, I'm going to give it three and a half topless crab fights oh, yeah those were pretty awesome <laughs> that was great is there time on like the pirate ship while they were traveling from one place to the other yeah they're like maybe not so great <laughs> <laughs> so i had a another book i had rough riders number two from aftershock comics it's written by adam glass art by patrick i want to say O'Leaf. I might be saying that wrong which wouldn't be a, a first time on this show colors by gabe elates elates Again, not quite sure how you pronounce the name. So I guess this is actually written by one of the producers of Supernatural, which I didn't know. I don't know how I missed it because it says it on the cover, I think, somewhere. Rough Riders is basically, it's almost like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, but they're not literary characters. They're historical figures. So you've got you've got Teddy Roosevelt gathering up his team to go and investigate what's happened to the Maine that blew up in San Juan Harbor, which is the start of the Spanish-American War and where the Rough Riders are, get their rise to fame. So this one has the last book we got introduced to to one of the characters, and here we meet the rest of them. I had thought the, the cover had the na- the last names of people. I had thought that Eastman was part of like the Eastman like Kodak company some photographer but i was could not have been more wrong Um, he's one of the last new york gangsters before what we would think of as like the mafia comes in so if you've seen maybe like gangs of new york like that's the time period that he's from and we also meet harry houdini who's a escape artist and reminds me a lot of gambit when he throws his uh his cards at people because they're like razor sharp which seems kind of goofy to me but it works and then you also have thomas edison who's super old but everyone seems to respect him and i like that the way that teddy roosevelt is able to convince him to go and join them he's like well if you don't want to do it maybe nikola tesla will want to oh, he's like oh hell no <laughs> best right there i was like yeah, yeah. 
Get him! I like that. So you've got old man Thomas Edison with them, and then you also have, who I thought, you've got Eastman, who is, like I said, one of the last of like the old-time New York gangsters. And then you have Annie Oakley in this, who is just so awesome. I love her so much. Yes. She's this sassy drunk who wants to dance with him so that she... And what I like about the scene where she you know, basically wants to dance with Roosevelt before she'll go and work with him is that she can learn a lot from the way he moves, like the type of man he is, which I thought, given her like physicality and how basically fast she is, that I, I like that she was able to, to learn about someone like that. So very similar to the way that the boxer learned a lot about Teddy Roosevelt when he, when he boxed with him. And it, it's kind of a true thing that you don't really know someone... Once you've fought someone, that you learn a lot about them, about who they really are when you strip away all of the things they pretend to be. So I thought that was nice, a nice way to show them getting to know each other. So Roosevelt Lee wants to know that everyone is actually going to work well as a team. So he arranges this ambush on the docks where everyone has to work and fight. And everyone pretty much passes the test except for Eastman, who does not really help anyone else out. Although, I, you know, I, I reread that scene a couple times and I didn't really see him being a coward. He was just really concerned with his own fight, not with going to... Because, like, Thomas Edison, like I said, is like an old man. He's getting chased around by this guy with a baseball bat. So he's, he's like, being behind things while the person's knocking crates apart trying to get to him. And no one's really able to help him until a little later on in the fight with... I think it's Annie Oakley who, who ends up uh, saving him, or Roosevelt. Yes. So he, you know, tells everyone that that's the reason why he, like, arranged, like, this ambush base, and that everyone passed except for Eastman, who he punches in the gut and, like, throws over the, the ship. I like this. I think the art is really crisp. I think that it has really strong writing. I think that it does a lot of showing you things without telling you things about them. Like, you... Your opinions form from people based on their actions, not from someone telling you, oh, this is a good person. This person is heroic. You just, you get to see them in action. And I, I always find actions speak louder than words in comics that I'd much rather be shown someone than be told about them. Really enjoyed it. I was almost going to make this my pick, but I, I had to go with Hip Hop Family Tree. Oh, this was a great one. I, I really enjoyed this one. Let's see here. My points that you haven't touched on yet. Yes, uh, Harry Houdini being Gambitish was an odd twist, but... I do really like Harry Houdini's character. It's hard not to. Annie Oakley, how badass is she? Dual-wielding golden pistols, golden revolvers. I really like the scene where she's meeting up with Teddy Roosevelt and they start dancing. And it was, to me, it really showed her character when she all of a sudden took the lead and dipped him. You know, just while she was telling him that she's following him because she wants to, not because she has to. And so that really showed just how strong and badass of a character she was. I think... She's definitely my favorite character uh, in, in this series. I like that twist, too, because it also, not only does it tell you about her character, but it also tells you about Roosevelt, that he is okay with that. Yes. He doesn't freak out. He doesn't fight her on it. That he lets her have the, the strength. A uh, good leader has to know when to uh, let people do their thing, and that's definitely a, sh- a showpiece on this one. Yeah, the cast of characters is great. I was kind of like, you know, the typical uh, Tesla fan when uh, Edison first showed up, but uh, it was funny that he's not quite like the the mage of the party or anything like that, but he's definitely, I think he's more of the brains and influence type character is what it seems like they're setting up, up to be. Of course, you got Teddy Roosevelt, you know, America's most badass president ever. <laughs> yeah. Which is always great. He's he's always kind of like Andrew Jackson, but not evil. You know, he's always been such a like larger than life 
person in you know his, his actual true life was so, so larger than life what better place to have him than in a comic book yeah it just it was a great ride uh, definitely got me interested for the series for sure easy to jump into didn't feel like i had missed anything when i jumped into it i dig the artwork what else can I say about it, really? Great ride, definitely worth the read. It moves fast, it's entertaining, there's never a page that feels slow or like, oh, you know, gotta wait to flip the page for something to happen. Like, things are always happening. Yes. I love when Teddy Roosevelt is trying to figure out if Houdini is actually can do all the things he says, so he just ties him up in a bunch of chains and throws him in the oh. river to see if he can get out. So great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, either he will or he won't. We'll know one way or the yeah. other. And then, like, not only does Houdini get out, but he gets out and manages to both pickpocket Roosevelt's gun and wallet from him before he knows he's there. That was a great line, too. He's like, I stole your gun so I could get to your wallet. (laughs) It's just, like I said, lots of little, very strong character building in a short amount of space. They do a really good job of that. I ended up giving Rough Riders four and a half golden revolvers. Oh, you bastard. You took what I was going to use. It's an awesome image. It is. It really is. Oh, well, you know what? I said it before. I'm going to give it four and a half, taking the leads in the dance. There you go. So you had another, you had a book from Marvel. Yes, I did. All right. So I had Punisher number one, The Punisher. Marvel Comics, written by Becky Cloonan, art by Steve Dillon, colors by Frank Martin. I usually, I can either love or hate The Punisher for so many reasons. He's kind of a crazy character he's not exactly a superhero or a hero he's a total vigilante he's out i mean he's actually even vigilante doesn't really suit him well he's a murderer i wanted to take this on though to see what they were doing with i'm always excited to get onto a new arc and this was definitely worth getting into basically what's happening is that there is a crime syndicate and they have this drug that basically it kind of like turns people into like not super soldiers per se in the typical marvel sense but it kind of just hypes them out and makes them super strong makes them super difficult to defeat in combat so what we first start off with this crime syndicate basically bringing in bringing in this drug into a warehouse and they're meeting with this other character he's an older guy dressed in old army uh uniform and they're telling him basically that he needs to get this stuff moved and taken care of without any fuck-ups he's given these two beefed out giant twin guards to to help make sure that the operation happens and the main the main villain in this particular one he's talking about how basically the younger cats need to learn from the older guy and how if you know anything fucks up well then everybody's everybody's dead the older character also talks about how he's obviously concerned about his employment because he's got these young badass guys that are all beefed out on and uh, basically roided out looking to move in on his territory where normally he would be because he's got the age and the experience and the brains and the know-how it would normally be his his territory so he's kind of like worried about his employment flash forward a little bit until after that scene you've got the police are on to the whole they basically have a stakeout going on over the building they they're on to the whole operation and they're about ready to call in the SWAT team and take this take the sucker over that's when the punisher comes in always one step ahead i love that the first intro you see of him is him just in the shadows and you just see the skull yes great imagery right there that that really just like set it off right there it's like oh no 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 cops ain't getting to this one the punisher goes in in typical punisher style goes in starts guns a blazing wasting all the bad guy mooks at one point or another the you know, some sort of russian name i think it was olaf yeah because on like the very first page He's talking to him, and 
I like that he's basically not paying attention to him. So all the like the word bubble of the guy talking is just a bunch of scribbles. And he's like, "Come in, Olaf." The Punisher starts staging his attack on the building. Olaf basically at one point or another recognizes right off the bat that it's Frank Castle. And it's like, oh shit, here we go, because you can't kill Frank Castle. Well, that's what he talks about. He used to be in the military with Frank, yes, right? This is commanding officer. And he's like, they're like, so go talk to him, go reason with him. And he's like, that's not Frank. <laughs> Yeah. That's the Punisher. <laughs> Which, oh, that was a great line. Because once again, if it's like if you want to understand the Punisher's character, you have to realize that he is no longer Frank Castle. That's his name, but Frank Castle died with his family. It's like with Batman. Like, is that really Bruce Wayne anymore? Exactly. Know? Exactly. But even crazier. <laughs> yeah, far crazier. <laughs> At least Bruce Wayne's still there. He's only there during certain times, but he's still there. Punisher's going through wasting everybody. Then Olaf, at one point or another, decides that he's going to uh, stage his getaway. So he blasts the two juiced-out, super-steroid twins. Flash forward to Frank Castle, Punisher, however you want to call him. He's in the middle of killing all the mooks. One of the mooks decides that he's going to uh, make a go for it. So he juices himself up on this drug and goes after him. Which was pretty impressive to see this little, you know, they make, I think they intentionally made sure to, make this guy look pretty like small and scrawny so that he shouldn't be a match for Punisher and then he just starts kind of like tossing him around. I love the brutality of that fight. Like at the end where he has to like gouge his eyes out with his thumb and throw him against like an electrical box that he gets impaled on and it's a pretty intense fight. Definitely Punisher worthy. A lot more than you typically see in comic books so it was it was great. He starts beating him with a cinder block. <laughs> then at that point Olaf finishes off the guy right before pretty much fun Punisher was done with him. Eyes gouged out, electrocuted, all that stuff. The uh, last guy, I should say. Then they have a, a quick talk. Olaf tells him that there's basically files on all on all the operation that's going on upstairs so that Punisher could go through and, and basically finish up what he started with this, this whole uh, you know crime syndicate. Then he ducks out and with the threat of letting the Punisher know that I'm still a badass shot and I can take you down in one shot, bounces out with a good old Semper Fi. After that, the SWAT team comes in the next day. Everybody's fucking murdered. The agent that's leading the whole operation, she realizes that it's not just the work of some random rival crime syndicate, that there's that there's not only one person who was operating, which she realizes right off the bat that it was Punisher, but also another person when she happens to notice the trajectory of a particular shot that went through one of the mooks' heads. Really cool story. I'm going to save the last part, because the very last part, I think, is definitely the strongest scene in the book, but I don't want to ruin it for anybody. So pick this up. You're going to enjoy it. What did you think, Ryan? Oh, I had, a lot of, I had a lot of thoughts on this one. So there's okay. it's kind of all over the place. So I guess first thing I want is the cover artists on this really deserve a lot of credit. There's a whole bunch of great covers for this. I love the, the one where he's like sitting in the chair with the gun with all the, like, the dead bodies on the ground. And he's like throwing the bullets in the air. Then there's like the Scotty Young, which is like the more cartoony one. Like they're all really great covers. Yes. So the art, I guess, I guess I'll start with the art. So the art has a lot of really, my really, my only objection to the art and it throws me out of the story is some of the faces. They don't look right. They look very like almost like puppet like, like they don't seem to have much life underneath them. And it's weird because some of the characters are, the faces are really well done and some of them, they look, I don't know if they were rushed or I, I don't know, but the, the face for Olaf looks really good. Yes. 
really good. The main bad guy, I don't like the way his face, because expressions like he's always in like a perma sneer. We mentioned it. Um, you weren't. I don't think you were with us then. But when we were talking about a lot of the like the Superman comics, like there's a lot of those faces where like the lips kind of sneer back, and like it just doesn't. It looks very fake. Yeah, the, I'm crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and I also really am not a fan of the way that Frank Castle, the Punisher, actually looks. I, I don't know. I just I, I can't dig it. Like, he looks, you know, very physical and, and all of that, but I just, I'm not a huge Punisher fan to begin with. So this, I don't know, that, that those two things, I think, were, for the art threw me out. But overall, the art is really good. It's just, when you see art that's really good, and then there's little things that throw you out of it, they stand out more. Like, if it was just mediocre, and there were some things that were wrong with it, you know, you wouldn't really notice. It's almost like I feel like they're almost going for, like, a, the feel of, like, Preacher, in the terms of, like, the violence that they use. Because mm-hmm. this book is very, very violent. Getting on to, like, the writing with Becky Cloonan, Becky Cloonan is a, a great writer, and this is actually a really good Punisher story, but for some reason, they don't let them swear. When they go to swear, they have those little, like, cartoon, you know, like a hashtag and, like, an exclamation mark and, like, all those yeah. kind of things. And it just, it really throws me out that you can have scenes with people, you know, getting their heads beaten in with, like, cinder blocks and eyes gouged out and, like, the top of their heads being shot off. But you can't have, like, a fuck or a shit or whatever, you know, in there. And that really threw me out, which I felt was, like, a real disservice to Becky Cloonan's writing. I, I almost feel like this book didn't really belong on, like, a Marvel imprint. Like, if they have, I don't know what they have that's, like, for their more mature readers, but I think that's where the Punisher belongs because this feels like the PG-13 version of the Punisher to me and Punisher needs to be R-rated in my opinion. Yeah, I'm definitely with you on that. I didn't really think about it at the time, but now that you mention it, yeah, that's that's totally legit. The violence is like solid R-rated violence, you know? Quality violence. Quality violence. Yeah, if you're gonna do some violence, like, it's all very creative and organic and the fights feel like they're trying to kill each other and they have to use whatever they can to do it. So I'm all behind that. And that's why I have this weird disconnect with the writing. Like the actual lines are are really good. The dialogue's really good. The story's good. But it's just the fact that they edit that doesn't seem right to me. And that really threw me off. That was my biggest complaint about the book is it's written more mature, which they then have to edit down to fit in the Marvel line. And then some of the faces don't look right. Those were my two main criticisms of the book. But I did really, I did enjoy it far more than I thought I would like a Punisher. Kind of a mixed mixed bag for me. I'd have to agree with you on that. I mean, you expect the mooks to kind of have the goofy faces and stuff like that. Especially, you know, let's face it, this is more, Punisher's not a superhero necessarily, but it's kind of like the same genre. So you kind of expect that. But yeah, with the main characters, I'm kind of torn because the fight scene is so well done like it's not just the typical bang pop zot type fight scene it's it's actually a really well done organic fight scene you know i i really enjoyed that aspect of it the violent section of it just really they did it right as far as like staging a good just knock down drag out fight scene you know if you walked into the room where this fight took place you could taste like the pennies in your mouth from all the yes. blood you know, I feel like you'd be, st- I, I believe that there are teeth on the ground that you would be stepping on. You know, like they do a real good job of portraying the brutality of what goes down. Yes, absolutely. Artwork wise, I, I like the general look of the Punisher, but yeah, the face is a little bit off on that. And the main villain definitely, yeah, that, that goofy ass grin that he has. But it, it's just funny because they bounce back and forth between some, uh, on some scenes, it looks just really just amazing. And then other scenes, it's just like, what? 
what the hell were you doing there? One thought I had was I'm like, I wonder if because the main villain is like African-American that the the artist is maybe not as familiar with that. But then if you look at the, the cop, one of the two cops, he's also African-American and his face is much better. It's it's very confusing to me why his face looks so, so unlifelike. You know, one of the things that I thought about was in the end scene, which once again, I won't go into too much because I don't want to spoil that one for you because... That it's like supposed to be a mask, maybe. Well, yeah, I thought about that too. No, it was just more that you know when in the, those last couple of panels, as you see that last scene, you know his face is done right in some of those panels, and then once he starts doing the creepy smile thing, it's like, oh no, there it is again. You know, it, it's it's the comic book version of overacting. It's just weird because like the artist hand, has a handle on figure drawing at one point or another. And then at other times it's like, what, what, what are you doing here? What, what the? Yeah, because like even like so the female cop, right? Like her face is done pretty well. Yes. Throughout most of the book, and then as you get towards the end, it starts turning into that like sneer face where the person's like peeling back their lips, and you can see their teeth. And I, I don't know, it just I, I hate that look on that comic book look on people's faces. Yeah, it's expressions that most humans don't really use. It's 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 a comic book expression, not like an yeah. actual human expression, which is frustrating to see sometimes. Because that's what brings us back in the comic book realm, in my opinion, is that when you have really lifelike, good-looking drawings, unless it's intentionally not so, you know, it lends credence to the story. It, it makes the art form more legitimate. But when you go back to the 1960s-looking drawing, where it's like they're just kind of like pencil-whipping everything out, eh. You can do inhuman-looking faces that are intentionally so. Yes. If you look at, like, Clean Room, when people get possessed by those demons, they don't look human. Yes. But they look realistic. There's muscles under their face. Exactly. You know? And in some of these ones, it's just like, it's, it's kind of frustrating with the anatomy being kind of off. I can't remember who that named that artist was but there's one particular artist that everybody makes fun of that was in image for a long time Liefeld? yes <laughs> yeah i mean it's not that bad you know i mean the proportions are right in most cases you know there's no wonky arms or weird stances or anything like that but it's just yeah the, the some of the facial expressions are really off he's probably my least missed world famous multi-millionaire comic book artist that is a legend that everyone knows artist Least favorite one of those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's like, as much as I can talk shit, it's like, you know what? You're a success. I can't talk too much about you. He's like the, the million dollar man. <laughs> oh, Ted DiBiase. Yeah. You know, he's he's rich and he's famous, but you still hate his guts. <laughs> so what did you end up giving Punisher? You know, the story, I wanted to give a four. The artwork had a little bit to be desired. Like I said, it was good in some places and bad in the other. I mean, not bad. It just... It had something left to be desired in others. So I think I'm going to kind of split the difference and give it three and a half gouged out eyeballs. The big problem is you sense that this could have been way better. Yes. So in the end, I give it three cinder blocks to the face. I had another book from Christina, Wicked and Divine number 19 from Image Comics. It's by Karen Gillen, art by Jamie McKelvey, colors by Matt Wilson. This one... If you've been following the story, it's it's time for all the gods to throw down. So you see, again, it's a lot of fighting that has been building for a really long time. And I think that this book does images, really striking images, and they convey action really well. And even in the fights, you, you are revealed with more character things that, that happen. The book is a masterpiece in the way that it's laid out. The images are... I keep saying that, but really the images in this 
are really, really good. You also have the writing is on points. You have a nice device where in the beginning you come in on the middle of a conversation and then towards the end of the book you see a recording of the entire conversation that casts everything that happened before it in a new light. So I think that the writing is solid. This is basically a really action-packed issue of Wicked and Divine. If you read the last issue, that's where they start actually fighting and throwing down and this is a, a continuation of that. It's really nice to see them just going just apeshit on each other, just throwing lightning bolts and flaming swords and turning into birds and cat people doing crazy acrobatics and martial arts. Like The action's really good, but the action stays grounded within the characters. It's not just bam, bang, like a comic book fight that doesn't really have any stakes. The stakes are very high in this. And I also like that we get to see a little more, this is probably one of those maybe second or third issue that's had Minerva in it. And I like that we get to see her her wisdom with the tricks that she's pulled with her her little mechanical owl. So I really I really liked it. I know you didn't read this one, Rory, but if you just flip through it, you'll get a good sense of the the art and it is pretty. That's what I gotta say. Unfortunately, listeners, I did I totally missed this one on our normal list, so I didn't get a chance to read it. But I've been flipping through it while Ryan's been talking, and wow. Really, they do some cool shit with the artwork. Yeah, they do. One of the characters with, with the neon lettering every time he talks. Oh, the guy who kind of looks like a like Tron character? I think that's Woden. Yes, yeah. that was right off the bat really cool. Yeah, it's just, oh, the artwork's really fucking... I love that the like, gods of the underworld, when they talk, they're, it's a black panel with white lettering instead of white with black. Yes, definitely neat. So, something that I don't, I don't really ever recall seeing. So that was a neat effect. Yeah, this, the artwork's really crisp and clean. Man, makes me feel kind of dumb for having missed it. <laughs> and the writing on this, there have been issues of Wicked and Divine that have like reduced me to like sobbing tears. Like the writing is as powerful as the art. Like I mean, you, you know, just flipping through, you can see the art's really good. Just yeah. trust me, the writing is equally as good. Wicked and Divine is, is well worth... Again, it's one of those, you can just pick up this, this fight book and get a pretty good sense of it, but you really want to go back. Because there's so much... This is, you know, 18 issues we've been building to these fights, so you really want to get the, the backstory, I think. I definitely will. But it's another great Wicked and Divine issue. Give it four and a half Underworlds. Awesome. I really wish Christina was here to tell us a little bit more about it because she, this is her book. Like, she knows this book so well and the characters. So, I think she could add a lot of depth to it, but this is her jam. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> We're going to go to a galaxy far, far away. Oh, yes. Once again, here we come. I had Star Wars, Poe Dameron number two, Marvel Comics, written by Charles Soleil, art by Phil Noto. Once again, we delve ourselves into the Star Wars world. So what's going on with this one? Poe Dameron, who is basically being hunted by the New Order. Stash that the main guy has. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'll, I'll get to the stash in a little bit. <laughs> the New Order is on the a tale of Poe Dameron. He's got, they had, uh, somebody had previously slipped a tracking device on his X-Wing so that they can get him. They, at one point or another, they're tracking him down on this planet that's like all, it's basically nothing but like cliffs and peaks, like really, like there's no place to like land or anything like that, so there's a lot of travel over uh, via like speeders and, and, and stuff like that. They, New Order, well, as they're tracking him down, they run into this cult of weirdos that have this giant glowing blue egg that they basically kick the door in on 
and use a little bit of the good old Imperial uh, uh, force with a bunch of stormtroopers coming in, <laughs> outgunning them. Poe Dameron's hiding nearby in the in the shadows and then you have the clever main character villain who's with the pencil thin mustache who i mean it almost looks like he should have like a curly mustache like constantly like braiding it like the old school uh villains from the black and white movies yeah definitely like an evil errol flynn is kind of who he reminds me of yes that's a good way to put it and I'm not sure whether I love him or hate him yet because it's like, on one hand, it's like, oh, he's the villain, so you're supposed to hate him. But it's not like the good kind of hate. It's like he's kind of almost too cheesy for me sometimes. I admire him for being such a magnificent bastard, basically. Yes, he's very good at the <laughs> bastard role. You know, at one point or another, he's on his slave or on his ship with all of his different, they don't call him specifically slaves, but he's taken all these prisoners that he has as hostages and he's basically like talking about it's it's kind of interesting like later on in the story when he's talking with with phasma he's talking with her via hologram things yeah hologram things i want to say holodeck but that's not right sorry star wars fans bringing in a star trek reference oh god so he's talking with phasma via the little holograph holonet thing it was kind of interesting because she brings up the fact the first order is not the empire that they're you know pure stronger and uh, it was funny to me that he said, yeah, you're right, they're not the Empire. <laughs> but maybe they will be one day with hard work. I was like, ooh, that is such a snarky-ass line. Burn. Yeah, it was yeah. like, ooh, in your face, what you gonna do? He also later on, you know, is like, oh, I've been doing this since since before you were ever born. It's like, he's pulling the old man card like a motherfucker. It's great. Yeah. Um, so in that aspect, gotta love that character. Later on, you get the... Poe Dameron sends out a message to the rest of his crew. They're out flying their X-Wings nearby. They're not supposed to fire on this platform ship that's sitting outside of the entrance to the tunnel. And it's got, like, TIE fighters all over it, stormtroopers and whatnot. They're not supposed to open fire on this, but at the same time, they were also given orders to give Poe leverage. So they basically kind of sort of stretch the rules a little bit when they buzz by with an A-Wing hoping that the TIE fighters will come after him. That doesn't, they're like, yeah, not even going to bother. Uh, <laughs> which was fucking hilarious. Yeah, I liked his actual, those guys' responses. Eh. Yeah, it was just like, uh, whatever. And then, so he decides that, well, I got to get their attention somehow and flies back by and opens fire on like the board of the ship without actually shooting any of the troopers or the TIE fighters or anything like that. And then it was like, oh, my He's like, whoops, slipped. my finger slipped. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. So then there's, you know, all this dialogue that goes back and forth between Poe and the villain once once they f- finally get him to come out because he's basically going to toast this egg that's supposed to have, like, the savior of everyone out there. He's just, yeah, he's a really bad, he's a fucking bastard. But then, you know, there's the duel of wits between him and uh, him and Poe. I don't know about you, Ryan, but it kind of reminded me of, of Princess Bride. It's exactly what it reminded me of, of, you know, I clearly cannot choose the the cup in front of me that that whole thing that's just that back and forth yes yeah it is there's a lot of back and forth in in that and it also the sword fight that they have yes where he's like oh you'll counter with this and then i'll do this yeah. you know they've very much captured that vibe throughout the entire thing i also appreciate that he's not like just an evil maniac he escalates the violence as needed like it's a tool in his his, his repertoire but it's not his only tool exactly he's not just looking to if you were dealing with say like darth vader you know, he's just like, yeah, bring out the torture droids. Yeah. You know, I mean, because obviously he could have just slaughtered this group of hippies, you know, space hippies that are out there praying to the egg. 
you know, he decides not to do that. He, I mean, he could have done the good old, I'm going to shoot one of them until you come out. Doesn't do that. You know, he really is careful with his violence and uses it as a necessary tool. He's, he's really a brain character. And that's what I like about him. It's, that it's just, he's clever. He's witty. He really, you could tell that he's thinking, he's got a plan worked out in his head and he's got contingency plans left and right. Then we kind of leave off after the, the sidekicks of Poe blast the airship out of face by accident <laughs> after a big you know space tie fighter fight and that's where they leave us kind of hanging i liked it you know but i've kind of always felt the same thing about all of the star wars issues that i've read so far is that i like them but i'm not in love with them you know it's like kind of like what you talked about before where kind of got to be careful when you have like the big title issues because sometimes you know when it's it's some sort of franchise or something like that it can be really crappy or it could be really just like a waste of money. Sometimes they're great. This one, I don't think it's really crappy by any means. I've enjoyed this one considerably more than I did the droids. I just never really got a bead on Poe and the obsession with them. I liked the ish- our last ish- issue with Leia a lot better. But I mean, it was a good ride. It was definitely a good ride. It's not horrible. It's not great. I like it. But it's never quite tickled my fancy really all that well. That's what I think. What do you think, Ryan? Yeah, I felt that this one, it felt like it belonged in the world of Star Wars. So I felt that they, they know how to how to balance that stuff. The thing that I really I enjoyed about this is that the sort of the cat not like cat and mouse that they have back and forth between each other, where one person will gain the advantage and then they'll do something to alter the situation so the other person has the advantage. Or one person will have the advantage down underground in the bunker, but then the other person has the advantage up in the air. There's this real balance of force going on. I like that. And I also like that it's like at the end where Poe thinks he's won, and then the guy's like, well, I brought a Star Destroyer. <laughs> so it's it's like that always, like there's always a bigger fish idea. I, I like this this new character, I think, is is really interesting to me because I think... I get the sense that we haven't seen all of his tricks, not even close. He's, he's really cool. And I think he, with Poe, he's rakish, charming, like rogue type character. And that this guy matches him pretty well, I think. I just enjoyed that the character, like I said, like he will use violence and that's certainly a tool to get what he wants, but it's not his first tool or his only tool. Definitely. And there's always a point to it, you know, and he always has another plan in place. I don't know where I would put it in the series of, of the spinoff ones. It's, it's good. I don't think it's great. If you want more from New Hope, not New Hope. <laughs> <laughs> if you want more from Force Awakens or you really like Poe, although you don't actually get that much Poe in this, you get a lot more of this other guy. But if you like Poe, I think this will give you what, you what you want. I ended up giving it three and a half A-wings. Once again, going with it, I, I enjoyed it, but I feel like I could have gotten more out of it. I've never been terribly in love with the story. I do really like the, the new villain, though. I'm going to give it a definite three and a half curly mustaches. I had um, part of the Apocalypse Wars series that all the X-Men titles are, are going through, which are kind of the interconnected ones. This one is Uncanny X-Men number 7 from Marvel Comics. It's written by Colin Bunn. Art by Ken Lashley, colors by Nolan Woodard. The first one that I read in this arc, I was not that crazy about. There was a lot of... And the things I didn't like in that are still the things I don't like in this one. But this one, I think, is a lot better than the previous issue. I don't like the part in the Morlock Tunnels with... Um, oh, what's the, the name of the lady with the eye patch? Is it Callisto? Whoever the, the Morlock lady with the eye patch is just bickering back and forth with uh, one of the X-Men, and I I really don't like that interplay between them. I don't think it really... It's just petty, and it doesn't really advance the character or plot that much. So that was the part I liked about 
disliked about the last one, still what I dislike about this one. But there also are really cool scenes with Angel and Archangel that are really interesting. I really, I found this one to be much more compelling than the previous story. I don't know if it's just because we're now into the story and we don't need as much you know, set up for it. There's a part where they, they find Warren and he's talk, quoting like a lot of biblical verses about, you know, it's if your eyes offend you, you know, pluck it out and throw it in the fire and, you know, you can see where he's cut off his wings. So th- there's lots of that kind of stuff going on. And then they track him down to this bunker. There's this like underground, basically temple to Apocalypse, where Apocalypse's uh, children are there and they're there's this fight between Magneto and Psylocke and some other people. And then you finally reveal why the Morlocks have had uh, Sabretooth and that other lady come down into the tunnels to check out these mutants that are diseased. And that's when you see that they're turning into basically into monsters. So the issue was actually more action-packed, had better, much better art, I felt, than the previous one. I mean, overall, if you like these, these characters, you will like this. If you like Magneto, if you like Psylocke, if you like Sabretooth, if you like Angel or Archangel, you will like this. It's got a lot of, I think, how much you like Angel plot lines, which tend to be very centered around guilt and sin and religious overtones. If you like that kind of stuff in your comics, you're going to get it in here. If you find that kind of mopey navel-gazing to be introspective bullshit that you don't like, which I'm kind of in the middle between the two, you may not like this one, so... I think that will really be the deciding factor in what you like. Also, if you like the Morlocks, you get some pretty cool Morlock stuff. You know, take it with what you will. I ended up giving it three and a half angel wings. The story's okay. I dig the story well enough. But you know what's really fucking killing me is the artwork in this shit. I like, the coloring's great. I mean, it's very vibrant and stuff like that. But what's really car- killing me is, I mean, I just bashed on it a little bit ago. But if there's one thing that I hate in comic books, it really fucking kills me. Anybody who's ever spent any time in art classes knows this. One of the first things when, when you start learning figure drawing is how to draw a proportional character. It's one thing that I've always hated with comic books, and I always will as long as I see it. Is, you know, there's so many disproportional characters. Let's see here. Since I'm flipping through, let me just point out one that I just found. So there's this scene... That's Sabretooth. ...with this Morlock, and, I mean, you look at leg look at Wolverine's fucking leg there it is this damn near the size of his fucking torso and his biceps are not much smaller than that so you know it's you have things like Psylocke's kind of notorious for that too being drawn not not as a human form and the thing is that they come so close on a lot of this stuff like this was really just an inch and a half away from me fucking loving it there's one full it's the splash page it's kind of near the beginning where Angel is like tangled up in like the like ropes and cords like hanging from the ceiling. Yes. Like, to me, that is a really awesome drawing. But then they have almost the same image later on, and it looks all fucked up, <laughs> you know? Like towards the end of the book, there's basically the same... It's like, it's like they started drinking when they started drawing this comic book, and then towards the end, it's like they're drunk as shit and just going, ah, fuck it, you know? Yeah, it's, it's really a shame because, you know, I, like I said, I really like the coloring. They do have some good scenes in here. As it goes on, the proportions get wonkier and wonkier and that's just something i can't stand so i'm gonna have to really slam this sucker i think i'm going to give it one and a half more locks i can't stand disproportion fucking comic book drawing it just drives me nuts it, it once again it's one of those things that brings us back and makes us look like makes comic books look like a silly children's art form when you can't even draw a human figure correctly i'm sorry it just bothers me very true yeah because like there are books that we read that do not break you out of the story 
like Hip Hop Family Tree or Moon Knight or, you know, none of those take you out of the story. Like, you are fully invested in it. And then there are ones where the art's fucked up or the writing is off by just, like, half a degree or they have to edit something. And it just, it throws you out of there. It breaks the spell. I couldn't take it seriously just because of the artwork, you know. I mean, and again, with superhero-type comics, you know, I, I, I do understand that there's... They kind of do different things than the more, you know, when you're going more for like a, a more serious type superhero, the more traditional ones, sometimes they get out of that. But just, I'm sorry, you know, unless that's, unless it's an intentional thing and it's, it's an intentional wonkiness, you know, where you're doing that for a reason, you know, then I can dig it. But I, I just, I couldn't dig it. I, I couldn't dig it at all. But I mean, you can have superhero comics that still tell you something beyond a dude in spandex just punching people. Like we read a, a Batman issue that I thought was, you know, about a, a lot more yes. than just comic book stuff. And, you know, that the Moon Knight issues, I think, are telling a more complex story. Like there's stuff out, out there like tights and spandex doesn't necessarily Absolutely. mean it's going to be stupid bullshit. But it can easily go there. Men are known for kind of having things that go outside of just the tights and spandex, you know, or well, not outside the tights and spandex, but outside of the the goofy what I'm knocking uh, yeah. superhero type story. You know, they, they they tell good stories, and the story, like I said, the story is isn't isn't killing it for me on this one. It's just you know, I just can't stand it when the proportions are wrong. It just goofs me up, and he like said it, it detracted from the story because I was so busy. Looking at the artwork and going, oh man, look at that! I what hear the you. fuck, you know so, that. Uh. So those were the books we read this week. Uh, to check out our weekly pull list and other nerd shenanigans, go check out fourcolornerds.com or our Facebook page, Four Color Nerds. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Instagram, also under Four Color Nerds. You can find the podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, and on Podcast Addict. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to come back next week for another episode. Until then, keep reading, nerds. Nerds.